Welcome to GenCast, a sponsored podcast series brought to you by Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News. I'm your host, Jeff Bukaliskis. We're never truly alone in this world. A statement that couldn't ring more true when viewing life through the lens of the microbiome and the billions of organisms that it comprises. This mass collection of microscopic critters that reside on and within our bodies is one of the most fascinating and burgeoning fields in the life sciences. Evidence in recent years has linked the imbalance of these collective organisms to a host of disorders such as autism, cancer, and even Alzheimer's. Yet, we've just begun to scratch the surface in our understanding of how these microbes interact with each other as well as our own systems in order to keep us healthy or send us into disarray. I sat down recently with a group of industry experts to discuss the current state of microbiome research and what directions they see this field moving. Let's take a listen. We're discussing one of the hottest and most interesting topics in biology today, the microbiome. But before we dive into our discussion, let's meet our panelists and learn a little bit more about them. Panelists, if you could tell us a little bit about yourselves. So good morning. Uh, my name is Nate McNulty. I'm a microbiologist by training and the head of research at Matatu. Uh, Matatu is an animal health biotech company in St. Louis, where my team and I work to develop microbiota-focused products that encourage healthy growth in livestock. And I'm delighted to be here this morning. Hi, everyone. My name is Denise O'Sullivan. I'm a science leader in infectious diseases at LGC. And LGC is the National Measurement Laboratory in the UK. And we're particularly interested in performing measurements and how improving measurements can contribute to a wide variety of areas, including the field of the microbiome. Hi, my name is Amanda Young. I am a scientist at Illumina, which is a company that makes next-generation sequencing instruments. And I lead a team of scientists focused on applications of genomics, particularly in microbiology and infectious disease. Good morning. My name is Brianna Benton, and I'm the technical manager at ATCC. And much of my attention is focused on the development of molecular standards and wholesale standards for the microbiome community. Thank you, panel. For those introductions, I think our audience can tell that we have this discussion covered from various angles, which should make for a great and lively debate. So let's get started with a nice broad question to get it rolling. What does a healthy microbiome look like? Well, Jeff, I think you probably started off with one of the most challenging questions to answer in the field of microbiome research. People have been exploring that question for decades now. And I think we are getting closer to a nuanced understanding of how to answer it, but it's really a challenging question to address. And I think one thing that we're coming to appreciate is that how you define healthy has to be placed in context oftentimes, that healthy in one respect may not look so healthy in another respect. So we are looking at, say, a particular nutritional program or a particular therapeutic setting. There could be configurations that are desirable in one case and undesirable in another. But in general, there are a few different things that people studying the microbiome look at and generally consider to be positive attributes of a healthy microbiota. Oftentimes, they look at high-level metrics like community diversity. Generally, a more diverse community is considered a positive attribute. Stability is another thing that we often look at. So how resistant or tolerant perturbation is a particular microbiota? How, how well can it withstand certain challenges that 
come along the way, whether that's change in diet, uh, exposure to a pathogen, exposure to drugs, et cetera. And then a third thing that we often look at is composition. And that can be thought of both in terms of who's there, what particular organisms are present, but also in terms of function, what kind of functional groups of microbes are present within the system, what kinds of desirable metabolic activities are they carrying out within that ecosystem, and uh, are any of those functions absent? You know, we often think that an unhealthy microbiota might be one where certain key functions are lacking. So it's a, it's a very challenging question to address. I think it has to be looked at in a number of different ways. I think Nate uh, touches on, yeah, absolutely. It's such a such a challenge. And I think what's been coming out of a lot of the studies is the definition is so difficult, so diverse, and can even change from day to day in that one individual from what they're eating, from where they're traveled to. It's an incredibly difficult and complex area. The advancement of NGS has really presented us with a lot of promising opportunities to not only sequence metagenomic samples, but more specifically to, to better understand microbiome samples. However, determining if one of those sample sets represents a healthy versus an unhealthy microbiome, really, uh, that remains to be seen. It's, it's a challenging area of research. All right, great. Well, you know, I didn't want to start you guys off with anything too easy. Um, so, you know, this is a big group discussion, and I think you guys are right. You know, this is, depending on what healthy looks like, can be pretty diverse to uh, who you're asking. So I guess, you know, as a follow-up to that, the next question I would have is, you know, is there a link between uh, the microbiome and overall health? So I guess, Jeff, you know, there's, it's a really important role, especially what's been looked at has been the gut microbiome. And in maintaining the homeostasis within the human host. So it's fundamental really in terms of your gut microbiome, not alone for digesting of material, storing of your fat, um, development, detoxification reactions that are happening as well as really key is your immune system development. So the link is incredibly complex. I think just to piggyback off of that, I think one need look no further than the field of notobiotic research where germ-free animal models are often employed to explore how the presence or absence of specific microbes impacts health to see how fundamental that component of the organism is. Animals that, that are completely lacking in microbes do not develop in the same way that those populated with microbes do. So I think if nothing else, that is a pretty clear indication that these organisms play a really fundamental role in our biology. In addition to that, as well as aging, the aging process, it's becoming, as we are an aging population, it's becoming increasingly clear that you're maintaining a diverse microbiome into your elderly age, you know, is actually helping in maintaining your health. So there are studies showing how particular patients, their microbiome is becoming less diverse as they enter, say, a care home facility or a hospital situation where they're not being exposed to maybe some of the different types of foods and different countries where people are traveling to. And, you know, they're doing less of those types of activities. So that is also a very interesting aspect of the contribution of a diverse microbiome and how we age. 
Yeah, Denise, I would agree with that. And, you know, I think as any of our gen audience who's listening now probably notes, you know, we definitely write a fair number of stories on the microbiome. And some of the ones that we've noticed that have been getting a lot of tension are these sort of mind gut connections, you know, the microbiome's uh, interplay within the elderly, as well as, you know, things like Alzheimer's disease and so forth. um, And, you know, what their effect is on those neurological states. Nate, you mentioned something that sort of touches on a question that I have as well, too, which is, you know, what kind of correlations are being drawn between the microbiome composition and animal health and what we already talked about, human health, but maybe, you know, focusing on some of the animal health? Yeah. So at Matatsu, we're very interested in understanding the developmental program that unfolds as animals age, you know, just as a human being ages and their microbiota adapts over time. We see the same thing in in animals. And it's very clear that from the research that we've done that in a a healthy, well-functioning animal, there's a certain succession pattern that occurs. We see certain early colonizers fall away and give rise to more adult-like microbes within the gut. And when an animal is unhealthy, for any number of reasons, we see a very different kind of pattern unfold. So while the the details of what a healthy developmental program looks like are somewhat nuanced, I think it's very clear that there is a trajectory that you would like to see the microbiota take in a healthy developing animal. The nice thing about those type of studies as well, I guess, is you can very easily control the environment for your models later when you're doing, you know, particular animal health. Uh, Not so easy, you know, for the human to be controlling the diet. And so, you know, it's definitely it's contributing. Those types of studies contribute so much in deepening our understanding of the microbiome composition and health. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I really believe that the field of animal health should be at the forefront of microbiome research. Given the the luxuries that we have in the kinds of studies that we do, just as you said, our ability to control diet and environment and behavior in a way that is obviously just not possible with human subjects, you know, I'm really excited to see where the field of animal health takes us in our understanding of the microbiome. I think these correlations really extend to a lot of human diseases. We're seeing publications every day connecting the gut microbiome to intestinal disorders, which may be sort of obvious, but the interaction between the gut microbiome and the immune system also affects progression of cancer as well as response to cancer therapies, like emerging very important therapies like immunotherapy, and as Jeff mentioned, even neurological disease. And there's beginning to emerge uh, many companies that allow you to test your gut microbiome at home, either what we would call sort of direct to consumer testing where you would basically collect your own sample and send it in or sort of a physician mediated type testing that will give you results sort of, you know, guiding you around a healthy microbiome. And, you know, there's a lot of different companies doing this, but I think some of the research out there that, you know, I think has a lot of strong evidence is from Aaron Segal's lab at the Weizmann Institute, where they've profiled a lot of people to monitor gut microbiome and glucose levels and uh, develop algorithms to predict 
glucose responses after certain meals based on clinical and microbiome data. And this can really help people control their glucose response and pre-diabetic and diabetic conditions. So that's just sort of one example of where I think these correlations are going to actually provide information to consumers to better control their health. So recently, there's been a lot of talk about trying to correlate microbiome data to health from everything from intestinal disorders to psychiatric disorders to obesity. And there's a growing number of biotech and pharma companies, and they're targeting human microbiome analysis. But this approach needs to be done safely and with a lot of oversight. So when I hear microbiome composition, I pause because depending on many, many factors, starting from your sample collection to your data analysis, you could end up with a very different data set at the end. So that needs to be taken into account when we talk about microbiome composition. Additionally, any given microbiome is constantly changing depending on numerous factors such as diet, travel, behaviors. In other words, a simple sample set can be collected from the same site in the morning, and then you can collect that same site again in the evening, and your results may vary. So additionally, given the variability in sample processing, I think there should be a great deal of caution when trying to correlate microbiome data with with overall health. So I think expanding upon that as well, too, for the panel, we've been talking about a bunch of different diseases and the connection of the microbiome to those. One of the things I think that is almost obvious, but we haven't mentioned yet, is you know how might a better understanding of healthy microbiomes impact drug resistance or antimicrobial resistance and antibody stewardship efforts? And maybe you guys could comment on that. So I think it's very clear that like antibiotics disrupt the microbiome. And it's really harmful for like general health, especially for children. And this kind of a change in your microbiome during and following an antibiotic course, it can alter your immune system. And so you could actually have a negative effect on your nutritional status. And then not alone are you selecting for resistance potentially in your target pathogens, but these antibiotics can also modify the microbiome and what's actually present there and how it is composed by potentially selecting for resistance in other bacterial species that are just part of your everyday microbial flora. So I suppose the real kind of concern is if you continue to use a lot of antibiotics, could you be potentially creating a reservoir of these resistant organisms in your microbiome? And in addition to this, if you're being given a broad spectrum antibiotic, you could be potentially contributing to even more bystander selection. So I guess, you know, if it was possible to maintain a healthy microbiome, throughout your antibiotics. So you're taking your antibiotic as well as maybe some other type of tablet that is, you know, healthy microbiome, if you get to that stage at the same time, then can you actually maintain that health throughout your antibiotic course and after your antibiotic course, therefore increasing the efficacy of antibiotics, hopefully over time leading to less antibiotics needing to be used. Um, So maybe you add in like the control of your antibiotic prescriptions, you know, so you're not prescribing a lot. So hopefully, you know, more understanding of what a healthy microbiome is could hopefully have an impact on antibiotic stewardship. Just to add to that, you know, coming from the world of agriculture and animal health, there's a tremendous amount of antimicrobials used in agriculture. It's really a big concern. I think understanding how the application of widespread antibiotics, some of which have relevance to human health, 
how that impacts microbial ecology within production systems, how that impacts the frequency with which we see antimicrobial resistance genes, and how it impacts the flow of genes from those systems to the broader environment in a way that can eventually impact human health, I think is, is an area of intense investigation right now. I think everyone agrees that it would be wonderful to reduce the amount of antimicrobials used in agriculture for that reason. And I think the more that we understand how those treatment strategies are impacting microbiome development and animal health, and also which types of antimicrobials we can take out of the system without significant negative consequences for animal production, I think that's a positive. I think also understanding how different antimicrobial resistance genes are linked is really key, and understanding how use of one type of antibiotic in agriculture can actually lead to increased frequency of resistance genes to other antibiotics within those systems is really, really important. All right, great. Thanks, guys. So I think we'll switch gears a little bit here because I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about sequencing as it relates to microbiome research. And this may be something that's a little bit more near and dear to uh, Amanda's heart. And so the question I have is, you know, to start off sort of broad is, where do we see the microbiome sequencing data taking us? Yeah, so I feel that we're just scratching the surface in the connections between the microbiome and human and environmental health. And I think as new data is published every day regarding these correlations, we'll be able to continue to draw more data and more research into cause and effect type relationships and, again, how to manipulate the microbiome. But I think that what's really emerging today is as the cost of sequencing goes down, it's easier to generate more and more data on more and more subjects, and then interpretations become much more powerful. I think the other part of that is there's still many bacterial, fungal, protozoan genomes that have never been sequenced that exist in our environment and may be very important for, you know, environmental health, for climate change, for natural product discovery, for antibiotic discovery. And sequencing is one of the most important techniques to really understand the community of organisms, both within us and around us. Brianna, did you want to weigh in on this question? The evolution of sequencing into the next generation era has really opened up a lot of opportunities, as I mentioned earlier, to process metagenomic samples and more specifically the microbiome samples that we just spoke about. In a relatively short period of time, we went from sequencing a specific region within a known organism to sequencing entire genomes of multiple organisms in the same sample at the same time. So that's a huge undertaking that's happened over a short period of time. It's definitely an exciting time for sequencing labs as more focus is directed towards correlating that data with human health and even translational medicine. However, there are several challenges to consider. The one challenge that comes to mind is with the evolution of the next generation era has evolved so quickly that our ability to generate this data has really far outpassed our ability to effectively manage the data and analyze the data. It's opened up a whole new era of going from a simple wet lab to processing small data sets to now processing and handling very large complex data sets. 
And thanks to a whole new career field of bioinformaticians, which kind of correlates computer science with biology, we're able to handle those data sets. But it is a challenge. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I completely agree. I think that we've seen a, some pretty exciting developments technologically in terms of our ability to generate reliable data. But really, the challenge is turning that data into information and turning that information into knowledge Looking at the amount of data being generated just on a daily basis in the field, it's like drinking from a fire hose. There's just no way to keep up with it at the moment. I think it presents opportunities for very smart people to come in and find ways to organize that data in a systematic way and to introduce standards that make data sharing and aggregation easier so that the community can really get its arms around all the great data that's being generated from all the great studies that are taking place. I think it's a significant challenge. Yes, I agree with Nate. As he mentioned earlier, this has presented several opportunities for us, and it also presented industry with an opportunity to market this evolving technology directly to consumers. Now, for good or bad, as a scientific community continues to grapple with managing and understanding an ever-increasing volume of complex data, biotech industry is rapidly marketing this microbiome analysis and NGS data for public consumption, as I had spoke about earlier, I think. One concerning aspect of this growing trend is the undeniable variability in NGS data that I'd mentioned. This is well-documented challenge with NGS. You can take one sample, divide that sample in half, extract the sample using two different methods but you will come to a very different conclusion. And that's simply based on the different extraction efficiencies of the organism. Not all organisms will extract the same way. Unfortunately, this isn't a singular bias and many biases can be introduced at numerous steps during the processing of samples. For example, sample site, preservation, storage media, extraction method, library prep. These are just some of the things that even bioinformatics analysis can yield a very different conclusion for the same sample set. So given the inherent variability, it's hard to draw correlations between microbiome composition and human health. But before correlations are drawn, there has to be a better understanding of the preliminary data. One way to better understand the data is, I believe, incorporating controls into the first step of any given NGS workflow. And these controls can be anything from whole cell mock microbial communities with a well-known microbial composition and cell count to a DNA mock community with known composition and genome concentrations. Here at ATCC, we've developed a lot of time and resources into developing these different variety of whole cell and genomic DNA microbiome standards for the use in NGS workflows. The take-home message here is that the consistent use of controls will allow users to better understand their biases and where they're being introduced into their respective workflows. And only after then can workflows be optimized to produce reproducible data sets. So just to pick up on that, we've been doing some interlaboratory studies at LGC where we've taken a step back and just looked at multiple bioinformatics pipelines just sending out data to different laboratories and saying to them, can you analyze what's in this sample? And even that is bringing its challenges with each step of the bioinformatic stage in itself. There are multiple choices and multiple thresholdings that can be applied to each. So even if two researchers or two laboratories are using the same tools, they're still applying them in slightly different ways with different settings. And it's not, and almost our aim isn't really to come up with this is the way to do it, but almost just to highlight that there are these changes. And the only way really to look at them is to remove the biological variation. So to actually just focus on any inherent error that could be just within the technique itself. And that's just looking from the data step to the answer as to what is in my sample and what are the microbes that it is composed of. 
Great. So I think that all of your answers have sort of touched on a little bit what my next question is going to be about. And Nate had mentioned something about reliability, and we talked a little bit about bioinformatics. But my next question is, is how reliable are the sequencing methods and the bioinformatic tools that are being developed for use at the clinical and uh, the translational levels? So actually, there are quite a number of studies that have looked at reproducibility of the methods themselves. And as I was kind of mentioning, you know, in order to do that, not alone do you have the multi-step process in your bioinformatic pipeline, but you have multi-step process in your sequencing experiment. And so really to find out and really interrogate those different steps, you could use it as a different level of complexity. So you could have your just generating sequencing data and look at how reliable are the different approaches in determining what your sample is made of. Or you could go a little bit further and start with your genomic DNA, so your nucleic acid material that you've already extracted and just determine how reproducible are sequencing approaches, different platforms, um, different laboratories, and you know, look at studies that way, or then actually go for the real total complexity, which is the sampling, which is absolutely the most likely to introduce the most variability in your approach is actually how you sample your environment, whatever that's going to be, and also how you extract the material the integrity of that material and the quality, because really your answer at the very end is determined only by how good all of those approaches are. And in order to, I suppose, understand that, you have to break it down and really figure out what is going to give you the most reliable results that you can have the most confidence in your finding at the end of your experiment. I'll say on the other end of the spectrum, thinking in terms of the downstream data portion of analyses, I think it's a very exciting time for looking at new tools that have been developed and new algorithms that are very focused on better defining what's been called the atomic unit of the microbiota. You know, what is the, the most granular feature that we can describe for these systems and how can we compare those features across different ecosystems, different communities. And uh, just in the last, let's say, five years, I think we've seen a lot of progress on that front from groups like Ben Callahan's at NC State University. Now, they're the developers of the Data 2 tool, which is, you know, I think a big advance in terms of helping us deal at least with marker gene data sets and trying to get a more resolved understanding of community structure. And it's been a lot of fun to see the field evolve in terms of data processing over the last several years. I think we're making good progress on that front. Yes, we've discussed the reliability and reproducibility of various wet lab processes, but we've yet to discuss the reproducibility of the bioinformatics analysis. And this is definitely a challenge. I mean, gone are the days of getting a small sequencing data file, importing it into a limited number of sequence analysis software programs and blasting that data. That's just, it's not that simple anymore. Now we are often dealing with enormous and complex data sets. I think that leads me into my last question, something that Denise had sort of mentioned about reproducibility, which is obviously a pretty important part of any type of research, something we address pretty often at Gen through different articles that we write. But what steps do you think should be taken to address some of these reproducibility challenges that are intrinsic to the sequencing efforts that are ongoing? 
So I guess it's kind of some of the stuff I was describing. There's quite a number of initiatives that are trying to address some of those types of challenges and to determine how reproducible these types of approaches are. And these are different kind of levels of complexity. So I guess from my aspect, coming from a National Measurement Institute, something we try and do is make up a well-characterized mock community that we are able to quantify because one of the things that hasn't been mentioned, but it is interesting, is if you were not alone able to detect the presence of a particular microorganism and to actually characterize someone's community, but also could you potentially down the line quantify those microorganisms that are present so that you could determine perhaps subtle changes in the environment or in a composition of a particular microorganism could, for instance, lead to an acute phase of your disease or your condition. So from our aspect, we're actually interested in the materials that we use and where we get those from and how we make them up and how we actually apply those then to the technologies and involve different interlaboratory studies to kind of ultimately in the end to say there are these differences if you use these different types of sequencing approaches, whether it's platforms or particular uh, strategies, and these are the differences you will see so that hopefully you have a better informed community and so that they don't just ignore the technical reproducibility of their experiment when they are performing a microbiome sequencing experiment. Potentially over time, hopefully you get studies then that are more easy to repeat. And so you're getting, you know, the explosion of data we see an explosion of studies on microbiome research continues. But actually the data is almost coming from, you know, maybe they've run some sort of standards as well as looking at their environmental samples. So hopefully over time you get better data as well as more data. And I would just add to what Denise said, I really agree with that. And I think here at Illumina, using a wide variety of control materials really helps us understand the sequencing platforms we're developing and other technologies around that for preparing the sample and analyzing the data. And every method you know, is going to have some sort of bias, but it's really characterizing that bias and choosing the appropriate tools for your study and then really being part of a community of scientists that have well-recognized and qualified approaches that they've published in the literature. And so that's kind of where we try to develop less biased tools, you know, high-quality sequencing data that can better allow our customers and researchers to standardize those methods. Yes, earlier I had mentioned the use of controls, um, the whole cell and genomic DNA controls during the sequencing workflow. But one of the other things that I think would help is to add documenting of all pertinent metadata. And what I mean by this is documenting how samples were collected and stored, what type of extraction methods were used, were there any pretreatments for the extraction, starting DNA concentration, and even the quality of the starting material. All of these things are really important and they're valuable when it comes to downstream analysis. Even the library preparation kit that was used and the sequencing instrument. And this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list, but it's definitely like a useful tool for future analysis. And it could certainly help with figuring out where biases are being introduced 
especially in regards to when you're dealing with samples of known composition, for like example, a microbiome sample, if you run that across multiple different platforms and you're getting a different data set, capturing that metadata will allow you to go back and figure out where those biases are being introduced. I guess in addition to that, then what we often think would be useful is it becomes almost a requirement of publishing your data. You know, in an ideal scenario, it would be lovely to have all of that information as a checklist that the journal requires you to do, you know, so you've got a community that are engaged, you know, they're really putting all the information in a checklist at the back of their publication. And so you could easily access information like that would also help, I think, over time. All right. Great. Thank you. That's all the time we have today, panel. Again, I'd like to thank you all for your microbiome insights. And we look forward to more microbiome discussions in the near future. Thanks for listening to GenCast. For genetic engineering and biotechnology news, I'm Jeff Willis.